Lucky you. Yep. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here with Francis Murphy. Francis Murphy. Yes, that's our end joke, the over-the-top Cockney accent. All right there, friend. All right, mate. How's it going? <laughs> How's it going, geezer, mate? Eh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Finally got that in. Another edition of the new series we're doing. The Captain's Log Project. Yep, yep. It's not something we usually discuss. No, it's got a, officially got a name now. But uh, yes, episode two of this new mini... Well, actually, technically episode three, because they did sort of episode zero before that. Yeah. Well, we'll call it two. Yeah. So, episode two, we are going to be talking about... Ooh, what one is that we're going to talk about again? Is it one of the worst Star Trek films, isn't it? Not this time. <laughs> No, we're going to be talking about Star Trek 2. Is it called Star Trek 2? Yeah, I should probably get that right. <laughs> start again. We're going to be start talking <laughs> about Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. Pretty excited about this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that being said, it's just came to me. I thought to myself, you know, the thing with Star Trek, the motion picture, was that you're, you didn't go in expecting the greatest film in the universe. And I kind of feel like maybe I've done this a little bit with this movie. I don't think you're going to be disappointed by it. I think I'm being honest. I think it's pretty well known that this is a this is a special film. You know, if that does that, is, you're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, again um, spoken to a lot of people who you know like Star Trek, and the way they talk about this film is that sort of like Empire Strikes Back mold, mm. as well as the fact that I've listened to a couple of podcasts from journalists and they've ranked Star Trek films, and this one was the one unanimously that was voted at the top, mm-hmm. um, is the one that's referenced the most and compared, used for comparison when they're talking about their highlights of the Star Trek films. So yeah, I'm kind of aware of its significance, um, you know, it's big moment at the end I'm, I'm f- relatively familiar with but I don't know the ins and outs of it and stuff mm-hmm. so I'm really looking forward to it and I'm kind of slightly it's weird to have missed it out of just out of ignorance but now I'm getting to do it you know watch it well I think you've seen probably about 10 times more movies than anyone else now that we know so I mean you've not only caught up on Star Trek but everything else including things that nobody had even thought about to be honest, it's really just the modern films. Um, I have a massive backlog of films that I know I should see. Films that you'd expect someone who actually hosts a film podcast to have seen. <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell everybody that, Steve. <laughs> That's a weird cough I've got. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Hi. It's uh, so yeah. This film though, we um were discussing off air right before we pressed record. Normally these podcasts we would do a sort of trailer watch to sort of get us amped up and going get a wee bit of a the discussion going for the start of the podcast don't think we should do that for this one no no i i just i'm not sh- I, I just don't think it's a good idea i think the way that we do it i think i think for all of the other the, there's not really another i don't want to downplay the other star trek films but i don't feel like i'm familiar with the trailers for star trek one and two whereas i have seen them for the other films Star Trek 1's trailer I always felt wouldn't be very clear given the fact the film wasn't clear and they didn't even know that the film was practically going to be about until it was out. Yeah, it was more like a mood piece so it's not something that can give things away or anything Uh like that. I mean, it it would only have done that if the trailer was really long. But um, basically, for Star Trek 2, I'm just concerned that maybe there would be be maybe moments in the film that would would be more impactful if you hadn't seen them right before. 
And I also feel, I actually feel that way about trailers anyway. Like, I maybe, for films oh, I really want our, our entire structure, you're saying we should Well, <laughs> for these films, it's fine. And I think, in, on the whole, older trailers are better for keeping spoilers away. But I do think it's interesting talking about trailers in general for films that are out now. Like, any films I may, I've really wanted to see and been really excited about, sometimes I'll avoid trailers. Uh, yeah. I mean, I not, because I go to the cinema so much, it's mm. almost... You know, unavoidable. Uh-huh. Cine World card. <coughs> Sorry, other chains are available. Um, but yeah, so you can't. I don't. I don't seek them out unless someone's told me you should totally watch the new so and so film. Um, but a lot of the trailers nowadays, I feel, are so long and they show. They seem. They feel like they show so much of the film mm-hmm. that it can kind of ruin it a bit, especially if it's a franchise you are really invested in, and then it it can it can. In- inversely make you a little concerned for the film yeah definitely definitely and I think as well because different trailers are marketed to different demographics now aren't they so it depends what film you go and see what trailer you might see or what part of the world you're in so if it's like a film like uh, a scary film then they try and make it a comedy for the children's yeah. movies when they show <laughs> the trailers yeah little uh, it's like twinkly music plays and stuff like yeah that. yeah yeah, you don't see Chucky as an evil doll, just a, a happy, playful doll. <laughs> just draw them in. Um, yeah, I suppose so. But I've, I've, again, for this project, we will probably watch trailers before it. But for this one, we're going to now avoid it. So we will just be, uh, we'll we'll talk just for another minute or two, and then we'll, we'll just put the film on, and we'll come back. Yeah. Um, what should I know? This film then, how how far away from the last one is this? Well, we'll set the scenes so. We'd worked out that the last film, Kirk, was about, must have been about 42. So this was two and a half years. Star Trek uh, 1 was two and a half years after the original series, which was had lasted for five years. Kirk had taken up the Admiralty and then managed to get command of the Enterprise back at the age of 42. And had taken his reduction in rank to captain and Decker was destroyed. Um or recreated or whatever happened to Decker. Listed as missing. Um, Presumably, Kirk then commands the Enterprise again. But whatever the case is, it's not actually fully clear in canon what happened in the interim period. This film is eight years later. Eight? Okay. Oh, wow. So time has passed. In the real world, it's not. All right. How how long from a film? When did this film come out? Well, bear in mind that the original series finished, I think, in 1968. Eight or 69 and Star Trek 1 came out in 1979 so it was set two and a half years after the end of the original series but it was a decade later so they had to de-age the crew a bit for that film Okay. so what they've done is they've taken this film closer to their actual ages if that makes sense right. but in the fil- you, you, you'll notice that you'll notice that they look older and, and it, it works it's very it, it, it's very enjoyable very real feeling that time has gone by. Everything has changed. Not everything. Well, the director has done such a good job with it. The writing is good. You'll you'll get that feeling. Do you know who the director is? Uh, a guy called Nicholas Mayer. Nicholas Mayer, who also directed Star Trek Six as right. well. Okay. So that's another another one to look forward to. Okay. Very good director. I think this was maybe his second film that he'd done. Oh wow. He'd done. I think he'd done a sort of a. I don't think I think it was like a a young a youngster youthful type film before before Star Trek Two I think was received quite well, um, but 
part of the reason they brought him on and part of the reason that the film was... Everything that made this film what it is was done out of necessity because they'd been blown so much money on Star Trek 1 and it wasn't... While it brought in the money, it wasn't critically successful. So they, they, they really... They said, we're not going to spend as much money on this second film. But they've turned out a film that's... So the profit margin must have been pretty good. Massive. Yeah. Massive. Fantastic. Okay, so is there any more setup we need, or do you think we're ready to go? I don't think, in all honesty, any Star Trek fan would know this. Anyone who's seen this film would know that there's nothing I can do or say that will make this film any better or worse than it is. Okay. On that note, then, I'll finish off firstly on this part by saying this podcast will eventually go into spoilers, because inevitably we're probably going to want to talk about the major events of the film, which could be third act spoilers. So... If you're listening to this and actually haven't seen the film, I would suggest you go and watch it, just like us right now, and then listen to it. So, spoilers ahead. Having said that, we're now going to go and watch the film. Right. Uh, okay. All right, then. Let's... Live long and prosper. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll be back soon. I look better with a beard. Are you? <laughs> Absolute. That's forced. <sighs> Hello, we're back again. That wasn't forced. That, that, that was. Wasn't. You were not saying that naturally. I was. <laughs> I'm not that bad of a... Well, I'm, I'm not that good of an actor or that bad. Anyways, we have now watched Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in the bag. Finally, I can now say I've seen it. Yep. And I enjoyed it, funnily enough. So, now we've watched the film, let's uh, let's let's get into this one, Fran. You've obviously seen this hundreds of times. It's probably up there with, is it in your best films? It's obviously one of your favourite Star Trek films. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I would say that it's probably in most people's, but anyone, anyone who's into kind of pop culture and, you know, you're... you're maybe more nerdy movies that you should see would have this up there on their list of things that they would have seen or want to see so yeah I mean as a Star Trek fan um, it sits in a strange place because it's the thing that everyone else likes who doesn't know much about Star Trek but it's also the the best yeah. example of what Star Trek is capable of doing in terms of the form you know the, the slightly depressing thing about that is now that I've got loads of films to watch and they don't beat that. Like, in the sense that there's nothing, apparently, is better than that, which in the sense is a shame, just to hit the peak so early. Well, that being said, I would say that, um, well, Star Trek The Motion Picture is a niche movie. It's a movie for people, that, it's, it's for for fans of old science fiction and, and old science fiction pulp novels and things like that, that's the kind of genre that it seems to be ticked there. Star Trek 2 goes full into absolute formulaic, this is what needs to be the case, pacing and, and we need a, a big villain and theatrics and action. They nailed everything, all the things that you could have said were the points that the first one missed, yep. the villain, the pacing. This one nailed absolutely 
Like and, and it is almost too perfect in some way. I mean, it, it is. There's nothing wrong, like in in a lot of ways. And you said you have to watch it again, and I appreciate that. But well, from watching it hundreds of times, I actually I loved I mean, this film. I but, loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was great. It was exciting. It was intense. It had powerful moments. Um, like we've we've spoke about before with um the relationship between Kirk and Spock and the sacrifice and things like that. Mm-hmm. That ending. I imagine if I was watching that. When that first aired, when it was at eighty two, did you say? Yep, yep. That would have been like absolutely shocking. And I know from listening to people, that brings tears to people's eyes because they can recall that first time seeing well, it. Being in mind as well, a lot of those people would have seen the original series as well, so they would have watched that mm-hmm. and then had years of waiting for the movies. And and these characters would have become beloved to them. And I think probably at this point you've got to know the characters better than you've ever known them, so you you can see who they are, and maybe part of the prequel movies influences helped here because the characters are roughly following the same strokes. There, it's not a perfect movie. There are problems in the film. There are little nitpicks and niggles that maybe you would look for in a second viewing. Things that I pointed out, like the fact that ludicrously Kirk shoots. And a little parasite that comes out of Chekhov's ear <laughs> with a phaser. And it, and it can only be about a centimetre away from Chekhov's face, you know, and it just seems like overkill. Um, I mean, there's other little moments as well that I think that, well, it's hard. The thing with this film, it's hard to find them, but if you watch it 50 times or 100 times, you're going to start to find those little things. But one thing I would say about the future films in the series is that they take the lessons of this film. And they might not be as perfect as this one, but they're certainly riffing off this idea rather than Star Trek the motion picture. And that, you know, and in, in, in a lot of ways, you could say that modern cinema is riffing off movies like Terminator, Alien, Star Trek to Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, things like that. You know, Terminator 2 as well. There's uh, aliens. Uh, that little cluster of movies seem to heavily influence what what came after you know um i mean star trek 2 is a slow paced film in today's standards yes you're right actually but compared to star trek 1 that felt like an, a really quick movie yeah well it's shorter runtime helps as well yeah um what was this one less than two hours did we say uh, I think it's an hour 53 yeah. and that's including the credits at the start and the uh-huh. end as well um, I welcomed that that to me um, you know the film did not feel it didn't feel short in any way it didn't feel like it was short change but it also didn't feel like it overstayed its welcome it just felt perfectly paced um, there was within that great moments of action scenes of uh, the, the, the two starships firing each other explosions going off um, but not too much not too much it was all perfectly measured but there was a lot of intrigue and mystery and on almost verging on horror at points the scene when Chekhov and the captain are investigating the ship before we found out you know what's happened yeah it, you know it felt there was you know suspense was building up you knew something wasn't right Chekhov realises it and it's, it's, it's quite terrifying actually yeah, um, and they can't see. It's all sand, uh-huh. dust storms. Yeah, on the station as well. When the when Kirk and McCoy and and Savick discover 
all of the science team strung up and with their oh, throats yeah. cut. Like imagery was, that's pretty horrifying. So yeah, like that, that's the sort of stuff. And, and it helps that, you know, you can tell, I, I probably would have noticed if his name hadn't come up even. James Horner. Yeah. Yeah. Was the, the composer. And now I know him from, you know, the, the sort of the, a lot of the James Cameron films. Aliens is the one that always, it was the most like prevalent. And I, I've listened to the Alien soundtrack, you know, outside of the film countless times because I love it. Mm. And I could hear, I know this is obviously before, this is four years mm-hmm. before Aliens, but I can hear what he's going to then do with Aliens from this soundtrack. And I yep. absolutely loved that. Yeah, uh, there was a, there was some, a connection that that was that mm-hmm. was helping. Well, a soundtrack can uh, really, I mean, as as you know from so many movies, a soundtrack can make or break a movie. Yes, in a lot I of think ways. it can. Yeah, um, and I think w- he's obviously very you know very talented. Yeah, and I think this was one of his earlier bigger films. One, uh, well, there's a few things I wanted to talk about with this that are interesting because we're talking about a science fiction film here, right? We're talking about space and. In, in fact, there's no aliens in this film, really, at all, apart from Spock and Savick, right? So hardly, you don't see anything, really. So it's a very grounded movie, but what you what you get in this film is a story about middle age, finding it hard to accept getting older, family stuff. So you're talking about, like, Kirk finding out he's got a son. Well, he doesn't find out he's got a son. He meets the son that he knew that he had with someone and then finds out that the mother hadn't told the son that, that that Kirk was his father. He's got someone from 15 years ago who who has got this revenge against him and Kirk ha- was not aware of this. Kirk's not happy in the job he's doing at the moment. You know, there's, there's, you know the crew's getting older, everybody's getting a bit, a bit older and these are all issues that people today and now and, and can face. These are things, are, people are facing these issues every day. You know, family issues. But what I find really interesting about it, and especially looking at Star Trek 2 now, is that this is 1982. It's a world in the future of our current time, so it's not a fantasy universe. And you've got Captain Terrell of the Reliant, a black guy. You've got um, uh, Carol Marcus, who has had a child by Kirk, but who has told him to stay away and she wants to focus on her science career and becomes um, one of the most celebrated scientists in all of the Federation and, and creates this Genesis device. And you've got these, in a film from 1982, you, you not only have these quite realistic depictions of middle age and regret and mistakes and things like that, but you've also got some quite good hopeful things in there as well that in the 23rd century that they, everybody would live in a society where people could become the captain of a starship or a, a, a galaxy-wide renowned scientist regardless of where they came from. Mm. Yeah. So there is an optimism. It is quite a dark film but there is still that little note of optimism in the film as well that because as much as it's a regret for Kirk that he's not known as son it's also a freedom that Carol Marcus has had to be able to go and live that life. I think the film, maybe if we're talking on that now, maybe it doesn't quite explore that relationship quite as much as maybe it could have. What, between Carol Marcus and Kirk? Yeah, that that dynamic between all three, the, the son as well. 
Well, like, they had the touching scene at the end, but I don't know. If well, they've only they've only really. I mean, if you think about the fact that Carol Marcus and Kirk haven't seen each other for over twenty odd years, and then, um, uh, obviously he's just met his son, so yeah, it's all very new. Those middle sections, I think maybe maybe there could have been a slightly more mm. built there just to mm-hmm. add some more conflict and emphasis towards that end scene when they sort of. Well, I think in a pragmatic sense, you know, it maybe wasn't so clear. What was going on? Well, yeah, because I had to kind of ask you. Now, I'm sometimes a bit slow in the pickup of these things, but I mean, I was getting the... I twigged mm-hmm. that that's what was going on here, but I asked you for confirmation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think... I'm going to throw in a little controversial point here about Star Trek 2. And this is totally... You know, anybody can disagree with me on this, but this has always been my thought and feeling about this film, is that at certain points, the vocal mix isn't right and you can't quite hear what's being said and it's a, it's slightly rushed so I can never tell if that's just how we, you know our laptop say no or... it's always whatever I've watched Star Trek 2 on out of all of the Star Trek films it suffers from that ever so slightly so like there's sections for example where there's jokes that get missed that I've, I've put subtitles on to watch this film like over the years like I mean God knows you know how much I've watched this and watched Star Trek but there's a section where the crew are lined up when Kirk is doing his his inspection of the sh- of uh, basically at the start of the film, Kirk does an inspection of the Enterprise, and Scotty and the crew are all lined up, and Kirk says to Scotty, "You wouldn't have picked this up, but in that line, Kirk says, how how have you been? How how you know, etc. And or since I last saw you or something, and Scotty says, well, I had a wee bout of whatever, and Kirk says, a wee bout of what, and McCoy whispers in his ear, shore leave. And the implication is that Scotty's gone and got hammered over shore leave and he wasn't well. And McCoy's <laughs> helped him out to get back on duty again. Yeah. But that's not... The, 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 the I don't know if you'd call it a vocal track or dialogue track or whatever is muffled at certain points in this film. Sometimes Kirk seemed slightly less... Uh, just to his delivery. I don't know if it's just sometimes when he does his slightly over-dramatic style uh-huh. of delivery. But then when he, he does a sort of... Um, his quieter lines, there are quite. I, I I wasn't sure, but I couldn't tell if it was just their quality of the laptop or whatever or something. But it did seem a bit kind of slightly harder to hear. Yeah. And amongst the rest of it, but yeah, it wasn't an obvious thing. It's the sort of thing you would notice certainly more than me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I noticed it because you know when you watch it on TV when you're young and then video. Um, and you're you know you don't have the technology that you have nowadays. Then you get it on DVD and you've got subtitles, and then you you know you get to the point where you've got it on a computer and you can really watch it. You can actually drill down into a film that you really know. Because I did wonder sometimes what was it they actually were saying. So let's talk about Can then. We've not spoke about him really. Since... Well, Can was the great victim of what you might call the whitewashing scandals or whatever that's yeah, come up so, these days. Yeah. And well, I was an early enemy of that mm-hmm. in terms of. You know, as a lot of science fiction fans are, you don't fuck, you don't fuck with the canon, right? That's basically how it goes. Now, you know, I would never have called myself someone in the past who was, you know, running around with a flag saying, you know, don't whitewash. I don't even know what that was, but I became aware of it at the time when someone said, oh, they've cast uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's can in the new reboot film. And I thought, Benedict fucking Cumberbatch? <laughs> well, why don't we cast... Um, 
I don't know. Why don't we cast uh, Robert Mugabe as Macbeth? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you it doesn't it doesn't fit. So, aside that though, because I suppose that's the the later films. We'll get to them. We're gonna have that conversation. But in, it's in because that. Ricardo Montalban was such a fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, he, he, he could, was. He, he almost almost chewed the scenery in that film uh-huh. he uh, yeah you could say he stole a lot of those scenes um, rightly so I think the first film needed a good villain oh did you pick up on the fact that Kirk and him never dealt with each other face to face in that movie it was always over a screen yeah I suppose you're right actually I was trying to think I thought there might be one scene at the end you were going to ask me a question though earlier on because you, you you were like oh they know each other from before do you remember you were yeah. saying oh they know I'd each other I'd asked because obviously there was a you'd since sort of insinuated that there's an episode in the original series that they yep. dealt with each other. Yeah. So I was asking what so, happened in that episode. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll put it into perspective because it can get a bit confusing with the reboot film as well. So the reboot film is way over there. That's yeah, a totally let's, different let's, universe. Yeah. Let's but think the, about it from the point of view of somebody watching this film. But like, Into Darkness takes place at the same time as the original series episode took place. Right. That's the time frame that takes place in. I just want to know, really, from the point of view of when this film came out, what was the history with this character? Well, what had happened was the Enterprise was out on its sixties glorious missions with them with their golden blue and red shirts and everything, and they were all everything was nice. And they came across the Botany Bay, the ship, the SS Botany Bay, floating in space. Right. That had been launched from Earth in Star Trek timeline in 1996 and there's a lot of lore that explains how that came to be but these genetic genetically modified humans were on the ship frozen Kirk and the crew thawed them out and then brought them on board and realised who they were that they were these dictators that had terrorised the earth in the past but Kirk and Spock and the crew were trying to be quite understanding with them and say well maybe we can give you a chance in the future it's different times now there's a big galaxy um, but Khan and his followers, who you see some of in this film, um, as Chekhov says, tried to take over the Enterprise and kill Kirk and kill the crew. So they managed to apprehend these guys, and but again, being kind, they say, well, here's a beautiful planet, SETI Alpha, um, I think it's SETI Alpha 5, SETI Alpha 6, I can't remember I which it one five. it is. And they say, look, start a colony there. They give them supplies. And then obviously, as Khan explains, when Kirk goes off, the other planet explodes, changes the environment on the planet they're on. And then Khan has had a living nightmare on a desert hellhole with people dying, his wife being killed and things like that. You know, blame spending 15 years on his own blaming Kirk. I suppose, yeah, that's if you're going to blame for somebody. that. <laughs> I think he's maybe been driven slightly insane because yeah. in in the original series episode he's very measured and very calm. Same actor, of course, much younger, but very measured, very calm, very intelligent. Doesn't let his anger. He's not an angry person. Whereas in this film, completely well, it's just, yeah, off the rails. Imagine a different character almost. Yeah, but rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, you, there was a series of books written afterwards that filled in the time period in between that talked about how bad it was and how Can was constantly looking up waiting for Kirk to come back and I think that's that can happen if you're desperate for someone to come and help you and they, they just don't you eventually can start to hate them 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But I think there's a sympathy for Can in that Can doesn't see the Enterprise get away. Can thinks that he's destroyed them. Okay, yeah. So he, he thinks. So Can gets what he wants in the end, in his mind. And I think Can was kind of meant to be for anyone that knew the original episode and anybody. The implication then was brought on through the books as well that Can wasn't. Oh, no, uh, there was a book actually that came out afterwards that yeah. were, um, that told the story of Kirk McCoy and Spock going to Seti Alpha 5 and looking around to try and find some answers because they, they wanted to know why Can was so upset and they eventually went down and they found an intricately carved um, burial chamber for his wife and Can had obviously spent years down there mm-hmm. creating this beautiful right, okay, room yeah. for his wife to rest in mm-hmm. you know and there was some discussion between them about about that that you know that, that maybe it wasn't as black and white as an action film might present yeah oh, yeah it's an interesting character and for a villain it's um you know he's got more dimensions than your normal action villain it adds a level to them that you don't get and i like that about him because you can almost sympathize with his motive obviously his means not great uh, Fran is signalling that uh, he's going to go for a little break so we'll go for a little break just now and we're back yo <laughs> sorry about that that's alright um, unfortunately due to time constraints we can't really um, go on too long we've only got a couple of minutes left really so we'll have to sort of summarise our feelings on this one. Uh, I've got to be doing the rating now. Yeah, I think we're getting to that. Is there anything else we should discuss first before? We mentioned things like we've covered the soundtrack, we've covered Can. Well, I guess what I'm, what I'm interested to hear your thoughts on are just, to me, and this is a this is an unbiased view now because I've seen so many things now. And, you know, if this was 10, 15 years ago, it's just... I would have just been talking about how great Star Trek was or whatever and all that, but you know I'm a lot more realistic now than I used to be. But it is just such a fucking tight film. Yes. It's, it's like, it doesn't... Watching it again tonight, I've not seen it maybe for a year or something. I've not seen it for a long while now, like compared to what, what I would have watched it before when I was younger, you know, the regularity. And, you know, there was two key battle scenes in space and there was cut you know the cutaway points were you know when they were on in the genesis cave you didn't cut back to the enterprise constantly seeing them fixing the ship it was you know the, everything was contained into the points that it had to be contained if you were to break that film down there's not that many scenes in the film it's no. very tight yeah it is very tight there's no you know it's very lean doesn't feel like there's much you could you could cut out there like what we're essentially saying, you could probably have added in some stuff, especially uh-huh. with the dynamic between the son and the, the mother in Kirk. Other than that, you know, I, I think there's maybe a few... I felt like Ahura got shortchanged. She's quite a... I know that she's meant to be... Essentially, she's functionary. She is essentially just a character to say mm-hmm. there's something on the screen, Captain, or something like that, but it, it feels like... Uh, she well, Sulu and Ahura, probably. Sulu and Ahura got really... Sulu gets a bit more... Like you actually see them more, I think. I feel like, but yeah, both. Don't them, worry. I know they get I, their moments. I feel like this is early, and they'll they'll be fleshed out and things like that more. Um, 
but yeah that's something I noticed because I'm used to now I suppose I'm coming at it from the point of view I'm used to watching the reboot films where everyone gets yeah. a bit more things to do in the cast is, but then uh, again the, you know there's a tightness to movies that no, do give people I, their place I because like, you know it's like if, if you had imagine seen, there's a crew of 400 people there yeah 400 humans and humans are all equal and, and like imagine the whole crew you know like you can't no like, no you can't, it's more because she's a, a character from the, the TV it? show it's, it's not like I'm expecting her to have a 10 minute sequence fair, where you see her you, with like, the original series Ahura was never done like basically Chekhov Ahura and Sulu they're like and were never really uh-huh. the they were yeah. they were the extras. In fact, they're damn lucky to have been carried through to feature films on feature film budget like wages. Do you know what I mean? Like as main cast members, Star Trek three, four, five, six, and onwards. Yeah, like, they get a bit more, yes. but like I think they were just glad. I mean, they were frustrated a bit with some of it, but I think they were also thinking, "My God, it could have been Ensign Ricky that was brought." You know, luckily they were the one because there was other people that did their jobs in the original series. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's just something I notice as somebody who's came from the point of view of watching the modern films now yeah. and watching it. That's just an observation, but I am completely understandable. You know, the the, the story focused on the Kirk storyline and the the the, the, the caught me between. Well, it's Kirk, Spock, Spock and McCoy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, they're the three. Because even Scotty, that's the beauty. Scotty didn't really do too much in it. Yes, yes, it was Scotty. I mean, um, but, but yeah. the thing is, they actually transitioned from that triumvirate to the family quite well as the movies go on because it does change mm-hmm. like the original series was Kirk Spock McCoy Kirk Spock McCoy with a wee bit of Scotty and them the other guys you know that's the way it worked but it definitely does like like I think the public became affectionate towards because I like Uhura Chekhov and well, Scotty well it's more I suppose once you see Sulu. these characters a few more times and you know the other ones that are there it's natural that you start wanting to explore the yeah. other characters more because you've seen you know the the, the the trifecta of the f- the three main ones enough, mm-hmm. so there's an there's a, there's an appetite for seeing the others as well. So I get that. Chekhov got a good shout. In this I film. Chekhov, yeah, Chekhov. Um, he, he was certainly he was much more than Scotty and maybe even McCoy. I'd say about yeah, on equal yeah. par with McCoy, the central role in the film at some points. So yeah, there's an element of them already starting with this film. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, some great imagery, some great space shots. What ILM did. Mm-hmm. An incredible job. Like, I think that the, the battle of that nebula at the end is one of the most beautiful space scenes or collections of scenes that's been in any sci-fi movie of, of any time. I mean, just I think gorgeous. I'll, I'll always associate this film now when I can think of this the, those scenes as this purple imagery of the nebula and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That sequence, the two ships trying to find each other when almost blinded and... and Mm. and missing each other missing yeah like I like that scene I hadn't seen anything like that before um, it was a kind of quiet scene with tension which is unusual um, and yeah beautiful at the same time because the the big sh- wide shots looked gorgeous mm-hmm. big purple nebula um, really appreciate that so I think a lot and I, the design of the, the a lot of things I like you know the new suits certainly are better than the beige from the first film yeah <laughs> although they did have the same space suits you might have noticed they held them over when Chekhov and the captain went down to the planet mm-hmm. they kept the old space suits but yeah definitely there's a lot more of a 
the, I mean, the sets are the same, the ships the same, everything's the same. The uniforms have changed, and you, the characters are older. But you, it spoke does... of, you spoke about it the first one. How this film, the timeline of this film, is the Starfleet commander a bit more in a militaristic, yeah, uh, kind of fitting. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, because of the sort of whatever's going on in the background with the Klingons, there's a bit more. Yeah. War. Well, it starts out with that simulation of them dealing with the Klingons in the neutral zone, mm-hmm. and then they're obviously training cadets, and you know. They're talking about being dismissed and, you know, um, permission to come aboard and, you know, the little whistles when you're doing things. And yeah. there's a, regulations. It's a lot more... A bit more stringent, a bit more urgency yeah. to things. Uh, okay, I think we've probably covered most of the uh, the main points we really wanted to cover. Let's get to the rating. You are a five, aren't you? Yeah. I, I would say this, and this is not as a Star Trek fan at all, Sometimes you just have to honestly look at a film and say anything that's wrong with this film is so minute that you can't take anything off. And I think, you know, having watched, I've watched this film so many times, I cannot, it's a five star film. I know a lot of people are going to agree with me on that. It's not perfect. No five star movie is perfect, but it's about as close to perfect as you could possibly get. Yeah. And it's, it's the, it's, it is the best form for a thoughtful sci-fi action actions in there but it's 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 about as perfect as you could get for this type of film really yeah i mean i certainly lo- i loved it as well um so close to giving it a 5 i'm not sure i'm either a very high 4 or a 5 yeah, it feels like a film that if i watched this a few more times i would know for certain uh-huh um, and I know from the from where it's placed in history and cinema history, not just Star Trek history, that it's kind of thought of within, you know, if you were to equate people's feelings on it within their five star scale, it's a five. Yeah, it's probably it, it's it probably impact. goes beyond sci fi in some ways. Yeah, it's, think, it's gone into lists that yeah, are like. Does this film appear on say like the top hundred f- f- best films yeah. of all time? And yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, because I think that that's. That's where I'm thinking, you know, that obviously that it is important in a way for, for science fiction and also uh, the, obviously the Star Trek series that has been, you know, it's been highlighted as the best in the entire the entire run. Yeah, so, you know what? I'll go five. Yeah, I'll go five. I think... There you go. I think the, the soundtrack... But you, is... we feel the same though. See, when I say that, like, nothing's perfect, that's what I mean is that there's a... Five is not an absolute. No, because to me, there's people always say you can rate it on a ten, and then you can give it a nine. Or, you know, I always to imagine they'll cover it to the five. There's a lower yeah. five and a half. But, I mean, I always imagine films like, say, we were talking about like Star Trek One. We, we were thinking we give it three or four, and you think three and a half. It never goes above three and a half, so it doesn't quite hit four, right? But for this film, it's like four and a half, five. It's going between four and a half and five rather than four and four and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that little fluctuation. And the thing that I think pulled me through to the five is is my probably my appreciation for the soundtrack. I think mm-hmm. it hit nostalgia. You'll be from, pleased to know he does the next one too. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, he was he was a great composer. Um, obviously, he's no longer alive, tragically. Um, but yeah, a great composer. And just hearing the touches that reminded me of other films that I love just brought a familiarity that I that added to the scene 
obviously it worked in the film and I think the, it was the, the battle scenes I could hear it was just so intense but there's a particular it. there's a particular motif it's like it's like a sort of a diddly 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 like yeah. sort of yes. moment that is it and that, that's the alien one yeah. but it's also like he uses that in other things as well that's his little signature thing that he does I think so and I didn't know that until now but bear in mind that that flowing music at the start is you know James Horner there is showing you know what the sort of range that he's got and mm-hmm. what he's able to do is incredible and he ties those things together now in the next film he actually takes that he takes parts of this soundtrack and modifies it into an entirely new soundtrack, which is incredible. And then there the, are even motifs of that um, in Star Trek Four. I think it's a different composer in Star Trek Four and Five. Star Trek Six is a is a fantastic guy called Cliff Eidelman, but they even take motifs from this one. Excellent. Okay, I think that's us. Then we've covered Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. That's uh, highly uh, rated for us, and that'll lead us on to our next film. It's probably the highest rated there will be. Yeah, we could. St- I mean, there's still obviously there'll yeah. be a few fours yeah. probably, but this this is the is one. There, is there probably no other five? In all honesty, well, I would say to me, four is, a, is still a highly rated film. I would say there's at least one more definite four and one more questionable four to five. Okay, film. Okay, but. That's re- being realistic about it. We're hitting an odd number next, which, if I'm right to to believe, is usually... Don't believe one. what you hear. <laughs> well, just... I, I, I always put that to the side. It seems to fall that way, but... What's the next film? It's called Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Search for Spock. <laughs> of course, that's... We'll touch on that very last scene then. You, you mentioned as we're watching it. Ah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. So, so obviously Spock, heroic sacrifice, amazing scene. Um, I mean, we've not audience. gone into that too much, but no. do we have to? No, it's just, it's like it's Titanic. The ship sank. The ship sank. You know, what I mean, it's just <laughs> I'm your know. father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm your uncle's sister's cousin. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things where directors sometimes have a vision. And they are being brave, and the actors are being brave, and the script is being brave. And Nicholas Mayer, who was the director of Star Trek Two, bought into this idea that Leonard Nimoy did not want to play Spock anymore, and the script was saying that Spock was dying, and that was the artistic vision. And I respect Nicholas Mayer for being upset about this because so, is that right? Then he was yeah. upset. Did oh, studio... he was upset. He said, "You go and fucking shoot it with somebody else," because <laughs> you know he was like, "I've spent all this fucking effort making this film, going along this route that you guys have put me along." And I bought into this, and and, I, and that's my artistic vision because Nicholas Mayer had geared this film around the idea that Spock was going to die. Yeah, right? so kind of goes and, against and you can see right up to that point because there was a point where I put my hand down and I said, "Steve, look, I'm slicing in the air here." There's a point where it becomes a slightly different film because someone else did all that. I'm not sure who it was, but Nicholas Mayer said, "Nah, I don't want to be involved with that" because Leonard Nimoy had a change of heart. The test audiences didn't react well to the fact that Spock died and there was no resolution or no hope. It's a little bit sad in a way because it's bittersweet because Spock, the character of Spock, he probably we have got to go and, we've got to go and see Leonard Nimoy play Spock in 2009 in the cinema as the same character continuity-wise. That is the, the Spock you saw in the Star Trek 2009, the old Spock, is the same Spock you saw die there. Yeah. 
So there's a bittersweet quality to that that you got to see that. And but it, it, I can also see Nicholas Mayer's point of view that I think if you had a vision and someone else stopped that from coming, well, it wasn't Nicholas. No, the script was the done. Script He's vision, the director, yeah. but he. You can see how it would be that you you almost incorporate that into like everything that he did. And all of his direction was geared towards that idea of yeah. um, life is not a joke. You can't just throw it away and bring it back. Mm-hmm. And then what do they do? Yeah, you know, um, don't cheat death. Kirk even says that I've cheated death. I've done this. I've done that. But then again, that is in the next film addressed because. There's a certain amount of hubris to the idea that you can cheat death and that you can always find a way out of situations. As you know, I struggle with as well. And a lot of people do. That you have always got a way out of a situation. Sometimes there comes a point where there is no way. And that's something that Kirk has to face Okay. in the next film. What you've seen as well, one thing I would say is that, as you know, in the last film, and I do apologise, this is like running on here, but... Kirk assumed command of the ship in the last film and threw Decker under the bus. Yeah. And he was a lot more cautious in this film about doing that. Mm. Yeah, like he had learned, which uh-huh. is unusual for a character to yeah. kind of display that, especially when the hero of the, the film. So we'll, we'll take that this about death to the next film. Okay. So there's, it works that way. Yeah. There's things that it's never a reset. It's never a case of yeah. it as a, an evolving story. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we'll hopefully get to do that at some point in the next week, maybe, if we can try and arrange it. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's us for Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Thank you, Fran, for joining me once again on this journey. <laughs> yep, to boldly go where no Stephen Barry has gone before. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. And uh, the best of times, the worst of times... Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good quote it's from a good, the film, yeah. Good, good line yeah. to end on. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye. It's actually quite negative. <laughs> the best of times and worst of times.